leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. fibrillation, a condition characterized by an irregular and rapid heartbeat, affects up to 6.1 million Americans and can cause strokes. It's not well addressed by current medical approaches. Chris Larson, an adjunct associate professor at Sanford Burnham Prebis Medical Discovery Institute, is part of a team working to find new drugs to treat the condition by identifying every gene in the human genome that can affect the rhythm of the heart. We spoke to Larson about the condition, SBP's drug discovery efforts, and why he left industry to work on drug discovery at a nonprofit institute. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on the show. I look forward to the discussion with you. I've been listening to past episodes, and I've certainly learned a lot from your prior guests, so I hope I'll provide some equally useful substrate for your listeners thinking today. Thanks for the kind words. We're going to talk about Sanford Burnham Prebis, what an institution like this allows you to do that might be more constrained within industry. But let's start with atrial fibrillation. What is it, and how common is it? Right. So I'll add a third part to that question and and discuss what is atrial fibrillation, how common is it, and why do we care? So let me start by taking a slight step backwards and and placing the disease problem, in this case atrial fibrillation, within the context of normal human mammalian biology. So our physical existence is basically an upside-down thermodynamic situation. We consume tremendous amounts of energy to survive as an organizationally complex and and very long-lived organism that we are. So we require a lot of metabolic substrate and oxygen to convert environmental energy into biologically useful forms. So we need a kind of exchange system to deliver this environmental substrate to locations in our body where it's needed. But because we're also spatially large organisms, we can't use the solution that single cell or small multicellular organisms do, which is simple diffusion. Instead, we have our cardiovascular system, which is the four-part combination of the heart, the blood vessels, the blood tissue itself, and the kidneys, which gathers up metabolic substrate and oxygen, delivers it to all the tissues and organs, and then removes the products of metabolism back into the external environment. Now, each of these parts has a specific function. The pressurized vasculature is the delivery system with blood flowing passively from areas of higher to lower pressure. The heart is the pump that loads blood into these high-pressure vessels and arteries. The kidneys maintain the appropriate volume and pressure, and the blood itself carries the metabolic substrate, oxygen, cells, and proteins, serving various purposes that we don't really need to talk about today. So now atrial fibrillation is a dysfunction of the heart component 
of this four-part cardiovascular system. The human heart is a four-chambered pump that pushes blood out into the vessels. We typically think of the heart as having two sides, the right side, which feeds your lungs, and the left side that feeds the entire rest of the body. Now, each side has an upper chamber and a lower chamber. The lower chamber is the large, strong chamber. It does most of the pump work of the heart. The upper chamber is much smaller and weaker, and its function is basically to prime or load the lower chamber with blood to be pumped out. For each side, the timing of contraction of the upper and lower chambers should be coordinated in a one-to-one fashion in a, in a regular, synchronous manner. Now, the upper chamber is on each side is called the atrium, so that's where atrial fibrillation will come in. So as all of us know from the experience of our own bodies, our, our heartbeats are regular, which means they occur at even intervals, like a musical beat. And when our hearts work harder and speed up, the number of beats in a minute or any other time period will go up, but the interval between beats should stay regular and even. So atrial fibrillation, to your question, is a condition in which two things happen to the contractions of that upper chamber, the atria. One is that they are irregular, and two, they're often very rapid. To give you a sense of the change from normal, uh, usually depending on a person's state of cardiovascular or cardiopulmonary fitness, the atria and the ventricles will both beat between 60 and 100 times in a minute. In atrial fibrillation, the ventricular rate will go up somewhat to potentially 140 to 160 beats per minute, but the atrial rate will go up very high to 400 to 600 beats per minute and be very unsynchronized, not working with the ventricles. Now, why that matters, then, is the consequence, which will be this now no longer organized, synchronous function of the heart, so you have a reduced cardiac output, so reduced blood ejection out into the ventricular system. It's, so in terms of commonness, that's kind of what it is. In terms of why or how, how common this disease would be, um, again, take a slight step back and just put it all in context. Cardiovascular disease would be the leading cause of mortality in both developed and developing nations. And atrial fibrillation is the most globally prevalent cardiac rhythm disorder or arrhythmia. So throughout the world, that's about 33 million people. And within the U.S. specifically, that will be about 6 million people currently diagnosed. So the Prevalence is the number of existing cases. That's the 6 million number I gave you. That is rising. As well, the incidence, which will be the number of new cases diagnosed every year, is also rising. And last year in the United States, there was about 1 million new cases of uh, atrial fibrillation that were diagnosed. So why do we care about these big numbers? I described you know, before that what happens is you have this unsynchronous rapid heart rate, and this results in a reduced output from the heart into the rest of the cardiovascular system. Now, from a patient's perspective, what they can experience sometimes is that uh, rapid heart rate, but they are usually are experiencing the consequences of that asynchronous rapid heart rate. So these would be kind of quality of life symptoms, weakness, shortness of breath, sometimes the heart rate itself, which we would call heart palpitations. And certainly quality of life is important. But more importantly, from a medical system perspective, there are large major consequences that are essentially life-threatening or life-changing that we really care about a lot. So the diagnosis and presence of AF leads to significantly increased mortality, uh, significantly increased rate of heart failure, and probably most uh, well-known would be the increased rate of thromboembolism and stroke. So in the U.S., you have about 75 to 100,000 strokes a year that are attributed to uh, underlying atrial fibrillation, and as you and your listeners know very well, you know stroke stroke is almost always a life-changing event. Uh, this happens because, as I said, the the blood 
uh, is not ejected at a normal rate or at a normal volume, so this reduced cardiac output. Our blood is right on the edge of clotting, um, so we have cells and proteins floating around in our blood, two different systems that are ready to clot at the slightest provocation, and certainly that was a good thing for us through the majority of human history when we were at high risk of injury and blood loss or infection. But now we're kind of protected from all that, and so the only major consequence is in any situation where blood is likely to pool and these increased intervals between beats that would happen in atrial fibrillation, uh, the blood is then going to pool, more likely to clot, block a vessel, and then the downstream organs are starved of the oxygen that blood carries and stop functioning and start to die, and that's what we call a stroke. How well understood are the underlying causes of, of AFib? Is this a genetically caused disease? Is there a chemical issue, an electrical issue, or is this just a, a function of aging that we increase the risk of this? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so like a lot of chronic conditions, it is much less well understood than people generally will assert that it is. So, as I, what I didn't mention before, we talked about kind of what happens where, you know, what, what characterizes atrial fibrillation in, in, in terms of a biological and clinical situation. Sort of one step below that, what's underlying that is atrial fibrillation is, is an issue of electrical conductance. There's a problem with the electrical system of the heart, which leads to this rapid asynchronous heartbeat and poor output. I can get into it in more detail later, but what I would say for now, essentially what it is is the contractile signals, of the electrical signals, don't flow appropriately over the heart as they should. Um, so then what causes that is kind of the beginning of science and where we investigate. I think like a lot of medical situations, you can start with risk factors. Uh, these give us kind of clues and generate hypotheses about what the causes of disease might be, what we would call the etiology. And certainly, as you said, genetics are a factor. I, I personally, I'm more of the viewpoint that genes and the genomes are kind of more like a probability than a hard deterministic factor. They place you kind of somewhere on a map of biological potential, but then that potential is modified by a lot of non-genetic factors, which you nicely set me up for there. Age is one of the biggest risk factors. The, I think the likelihood of atrial fibrillation over age 80 is about 20%, uh, but it's starting from a low point and growing throughout life in both sexes, although uh, male sex is a higher risk factor than female sex for atrial fibrillation. But as well, there can be things that happen within the lifetime of the organism that are going to, that are clear risk factors and therefore likely are pointing to clear causes. So that can include um, chronic diseases that probably result in some sort of either metabolic or mechanical stressor on the heart. Uh, there can be non-disease mechanical or environmental stressors, so surgery and other major events can, can lead to an increased risk either temporarily or permanently. And there's probably the whole host of other, you know, domains that we haven't quite figured out yet, which is sort of the, the starting point for what we're trying to do. I think another way to answer your question um, is rather than try to give a set of scientific descriptions or definitions, which we're still working on, we can go with a clinical classification, which again gives us some kind of starting point. So you can think of several different clinical classes of atrial fibrillation. There's a monogenic atrial fibrillation, which usually associates with inheritable cardiomyopathies um, that, that are also present in the patient. Uh, you can see people um, who are probably more polygenic, which would mean someone who is absent any other risk factors and is of a sufficiently low age, usually under 60 to 65, so that there's unlikely to be any 
undetected environmental factors. So we usually think of those as a polygenic uh, atrial fibrillation. Then, uh, from a clinical point of view, you can think about um, people whose atrial fibrillation can be localized through a fairly sophisticated invasive diagnostic system of coming from their pulmonary vein. That can be something that I can talk about later about how that can be treated. Um, there is a set of people who are seen to have uh, atrial fibrillation post-operation. That's a, a relatively unknown and, uh, well, unknown to a layperson, relatively well-known to cardiologists and surgeons, uh, but common way in which atrial fibrillation starts. And then like anything else, we just lump everything else into the other category of calling it complex, um, where we basically don't really fully either understand the, the pathophysiology, what's going on in the disease, or, or how to well treat it, and then certainly not kind of what's causing it. Probably some combination of everything that you said, genetics, aging, uh, and then downstream factors that happen to the cell either at the RNA or protein level. Are there problems with today's treatment regimen? Or let me, yes, rephrase. That's, let, uh, let me rephrase that. Yeah. What are the, the therapeutic options today, and, and what are the concerns about uh, the arsenal that we have? Yeah, so the question around how do we handle it today, basically we don't handle it well, and I think that would be something that anyone who's in the field would, would tell you. There's essentially three ways to, three basic therapeutic strategies that can be pursued. Two of those involve drugs, and, and one of those would involve a, a procedure. From the drug side, there's essentially a direct and an indirect approach. The indirect approach is to essentially not even try to address the underlying arrhythmia or atrial fibrillation at all, but really put people on medications that prevent or reduce the risk of stroke. And so that would be the same sorts of things, uh, antithrombotics or antiplatelets that you would use for someone who was either at high risk or had already had a stroke, and you would try to prevent a secondary stroke. So the exact same therapeutic strategy you would treat someone at risk of stroke without the presence of atrial fibrillation. Then the more direct approach would be to try to use uh, drugs that directly target the heart. Those can be uh, classified into one of two then kind of sub-approaches. You either can try to not worry about the the irregular beat or the asynchronous uh, uh, association of the two chambers, but just try to slow the overall rate, uh, which has been also shown to reduce the likelihood the heart will flip over into an arrhythmic state. That can be done with the usual drugs that we use for a lot of other uh, situations where we want a slow rate, calcium channel blockers, beta blockers, digoxin, things like that. Or, and this will get to kind of what we're trying to do here at SPP, you can try to use some of the existing antiarrhythmic drugs, which I will just say at a high level are poor, both in terms of efficacy and also poor in terms of the side effects, some of which are not just uh, annoying but actually dangerous. So those are the kind of the two drug approaches. And then for the procedure approach, this would be the last one that people can use. So one of the things that has been a huge success in the last 20 years in cardiology has been the use of interventional uh, catheter procedures for, you know, heart attacks, atherosclerosis, and treating uh, treating that, really minimizing the damage there. People are now trying to, you know, flip that over into treating strokes. But as well, that same sort of interventional catheter procedure can be used not to just physically pop open a vessel, but can be used to go right into the heart, uh, put a needle on areas that are being arrhythmic, and basically just wipe out the nerve and and kill the piece of the heart that's causing this uh, faulty asynchronous signal. And that the idea there is that you essentially kind of quiet down the tissue and allow the normal pacemaker function of the heart to take back over. 
So those are the options that exist. I think I could go into some details about, um, you know, what is good or not good about each one. I think the bottom line problem with all of them would come to essentially the efficacy. None of them really reduces substantially the rate of complications or the persistence of uh, ongoing atrial fibrillation. Is this essentially treated as a single type of problem? And if so, is there potential in segmenting the, segmenting the population as we've seen with, say, a, a disease like cancer? Yeah, so that's uh, the thinking that lots of people have, and I think that's it, totally appropriate. Unfortunately, it is currently treated essentially as a single condition. Um, people normally, at a clinical level, they will base it on stage, but that's not really getting to what your question is, which is, are people treating it as one underlying cause or different uh, underlying causes? So that's one of the elements that's going into some of the work that we're trying to do here through collaboration. So we have a collaborator, Evan Muse at Scripps. Uh, he's a, a cardiologist that does a lot of great work on wireless and digital medicine. And some of the work that they're doing now is is going to sound oh, very simplistic, but it's really the state of the field, which is currently people are given this diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, and they're all sort of lumped together, as you as you alluded to. But cardiologists know that if you put people on EKG monitors for long periods of time, let's say 24 to 72 hours, you will detect that people have different uh, states of arrhythmia. There are some people which are called long runners, which over, let's say, a 24-hour period may be in a state of asynchronous rhythm or arrhythmia for 10 to 20 hours of that period of time. You may have other people who, over a 24-hour period, only go through 5 to 20 minutes of intense arrhythmia, but then for the remaining 23-point-something hours, their heart rhythm and rate is normal. Intuitively, it just seems to be that those two extremes are probably not being caused by the same underlying electrical state. There's probably something very different about their electrical conductance system. So that implies, that, yes, absolutely, there must be two flavors or versions of this underlying conductance problem which are being lumped together into the top-line diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. And given that those are the extremes, there's probably other categories, subphenotypes in the middle. And this actually goes to one of the things that we're hoping to achieve. You know, one of our major goals will be to, as early as possible, try to match the involvement of any targets we discover to the different subphenotypes that Evan and other physicians like him are currently cataloging and, and creating a taxonomy of in the clinic. Well, you've done drug discovery in large pharmaceutical companies and smaller biotechs. What led you to do this type of work at a, a nonprofit? Yeah, it's definitely a kind of an unusual situation. Essentially, several years ago, SPP reached out to me to help build a drug discovery capability that would start from an HTS screening capability that had been created by one of the prior CEOs, John Reed, uh, when he was leading the Institute. And the NIH was in a period where they wanted to fund the creation of chemical probes for use by basic researchers. Um, when that NIH effort ended, many of those groups shut down, but a few, like the one here at SPP, stayed around and tried to make a go of it, uh, surviving off of grants and philanthropy and other things. And so the following CEO of SPP after John, Terry Nissen, had come from uh, GlaxoSmithKline, and he had a vision of using large philanthropic gifts to fund end-to-end -end drug discovery. 
but the people on the, at the time that were in place had experience in some parts of the process, but not sort of the full start-to-finish expertise that uh, Perry and others envisioned that the Institute would need. So I think that's kind of the, that's sort of what the mechanics of how it happened. I think what, what, what drew me here, what, what I would think would be, what I thought was an interesting opportunity, um, would be here one thing that we can really approach would be questions that are not bounded by the existing, let's say, commercial or investment strategy of a, of a for-profit organization. I've, I think there's, you know, the, the, there's a huge ecosystem of where new medications and diagnoses or diagnostic tools and um, other, you know, devices come from, and, and there's a place for everybody in there. People bring different strengths and weaknesses as, as entities to that. I think the one of the potential challenges for a for-profit organization is there is a sort of existing kind of commercial strategy that works for them. Whereas what we can do is we can really follow an unmet medical need wherever that's going to take us. Uh, and I think in this particular situation, that's really kind of taken us to atrial fibrillation. And, and the reason for that is that unlike that for-profit entity with a basically a business strategy, a, 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 few, a big fraction of what we do is paid for by grants and philanthropy. So you can think of those as monies that that they certainly have an ROI, right? And whoever is giving that money wants to see a return, but usually that grant return is, you know, publications and novelty and, and future grants and philanthropy as a contribution to a mission of some kind. Uh, but that's, they often aren't really a financially based ROI. So we're then able to use these kind of non-financially based ROI resources or capital to kind of go after things like AF, which would be a harder investment case for a company. Um, so we can come in and try to do some of that earlier risk or work, you know, the target discovery, target validation, and, and early sort of leads discovery work uh, that might be for some diseases because of the less obvious uh, ROI, whether that's the size of the market or the price per patient or whatever it is, uh, just makes it harder for some companies to, to get into that space. So. Well, your, your team is trying to identify every gene in the human genome that can affect the rhythm of a heart. How are you going about doing that, and, and how long should that take? Yeah, so that's that's one of the things I think we're we're excited about as a starting point. Um, so, what I'll the way I'll answer that is to describe kind of just the, the people and expertises on the rest of the team because that goes to sort of how we're approaching this. So we, we're a multidisciplinary team, actually a multi-institution team. Um, so the other, we have the other collaborators that, that are part of this uh, are a couple more professors here at SPP and then, like I say, uh, Evan Mews, our colleague at Scripps. So Alex Colas, uh, has, is one of, the, one of the hearts of this, no pun intended. Uh, he's developed this great high-throughput cellular phenotyping system for cardiomyocytes, uh, as well has really optimized uh, what I think is one of, the, one of the key elements of this approach would be the ability to take uh, induced pluripotent stem cells and then make them not only into cardiomyocytes, but into specifically atrial cardiomyocytes, because what we want to do here is really find targets that are specific to these upper changers, because one of the problems with current drugs is they're not specific to just the atria. They're also hitting channels and other proteins in this bigger, larger, lower chamber, the ventricle. And the huge danger there, of course, is that that, you know, problems with the, with ventricle contraction and rhythm can lead to stroke and heart attack. So we really want to try to focus on atrial-specific targets and mechanisms. So, you know, 
the one of the ways we're doing this is to work with you know atrial specific cardiomyelitis made from stem cells. And then two more uh, colleagues here at SBP, Karen Oker and Rolf Bodmer, are long-standing experts in using the Drosophila fly as a way to test particularly genetic influences, but not only genetic influences, on heart function. And as weird as it may sound, the heart of the fly does mimic a number of the same properties as the mammalian hearts. And the functional benefit of that is it allows us to very rapidly uh, test genes and very undrug-like molecules in an intact heart, not just in cells. And that allows us to validate both targets and leads, molecules, very early. As well, flies have a short lifespan. And flies, if you let them age normally, purely ungenetically modified, will some fraction of them will develop atrial fibrillation. So somehow you can even see an aging process in the heart leading to atrial fibrillation in the fly. So that allows us to now do something that's probably much closer to the model of what happens in a patient, which is that there is an underlying, in some case, genetic factor or factors. There are throughout the lifetime of the organism, environmental events, mechanical events, disease events that occur, and there is aging and whatever that process is, the cells and proteins and genes. And we can now look to see how two things go together, a gene plus aging, or a metabolic state plus aging plus a gene. And that allows us to very quickly prioritize targets that we're finding. And then, you know, like I said, Evan provides the clinical work. I provide, you know, kind of the overall drug discovery and translational research um, mindset in addition to in vivo modeling. And so then to get specifically to your question, sorry for that very long uh, prelude there, the way we're approaching this is essentially starting with these atrial-specific cardiomyocytes and then using a variety of different genetic interventional techniques, one by one knocking out every gene from the human genome and looking to see through Alex's high-throughput phenotyping system, do they affect both the rhythm phenotype of those atrial cardiomyocytes? One of the things I should have mentioned before is that one of the nice things about working uh, on the heart versus some other organs is that in a uh, uh, plate, you can throw down uh, cells that make up, you know, the majority of the heart is cardiomyocytes, so there are fibroblasts and endothelial cells and other types there. You can throw down cardiomyocytes. They will self-organize into a sheet that starts to beat. So in a way that you can't do with other sort of 2D or 3D culturing systems, uh, you can fairly simplistically create a 3D model of the heart because the cells do it for you. So we do that, and then we can knock out one up, one by one each gene in the genome. Currently, we do mainly that through uh, interfering RNA, but we can also do CRISPR if we needed. Look to see if the phenotype of both the beat and the regularity of the beat, so the arrhythmia, and then also the underlying uh, effects on uh, one particular subcellular signal, which is a calcium signal moving from one part of the cell to the other, which is one of the key controllers at the subcellular level of how the cell beats, we can look to see which of these genes in the whole human genome can cause an arrhythmia in an atrial cardiomyocyte. So that doesn't make them a diseased gene, it makes them candidates. So then all those candidates can then be you know, prioritized by a variety of intellectual activities, but then most importantly put into Rolf and Karen's fly system. And those can then be validated. So they don't only affect the rhythm and, let's say, the calcium signal controlling the rhythm in a stem cell-derived atrial cardiomyocyte, but they can also be put into an intact multicellular organism heart, the fly. 
we can again see, do they affect rhythm immediately or do they affect rhythm on the top of aging? And so that allows us to then generate a candidate list of things we can do. And then the third piece would be, come back to my lab, which would be to now put them into a mammalian heart. In this case, we probably you would use mice. There's a number of problems with mice. They're very small, heart rate's very high, all that kind of stuff. But they are a genetically modifiable mammal. And so we can use them to then uh, introduce the same changes into the mouse heart. Well, we typically would try to do that only in the heart and only after the animal has matured to full-grown age and look to see now in an intact four-chamber mammal heart, which functions essentially the same way as a human heart except at a much higher rate, do we again introduce this arrhythmia in the upper chamber, the atria. So if all that lines up, we then hopefully at the end of that would have a candidate list. You know, my guess will be that something will be like five to ten out of thirty thousand genes that we can then uh, think about pursuing drugs against. And then, as as you know from lots of your conversations in the past, that will then be informed by you know judgments about drugability of particular protein classes and all that kind of stuff and competition and all those things. But that that's kind of how the way we're approaching it. And then I guess the bottom line question that everyone want to know: How far are we through? About twenty percent. Um, and that's something that will continue to chug away that. Um, and hopefully over the next year or so, we would have a complete effort through the first piece, I should say, the looking at the stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes. The validation in flies would then probably take, I would guess, another year or two. And then the thing that takes a long time, just because mice take a long time to become sexually mature and reproduce and grow enough animals that we can use them in experiments, that would take several years. So I would say going all the way through that, you know, cells to flies to mice system is probably about a five-year endeavor. Getting through the cells is probably about a one-year endeavor. And have you identified any novel targets to date? Yeah, so that's, uh, that's, a, that's, that's a great question. So I think the... Um, What's been two uh, nice outcomes of the work so far, let's say the first 20% is first, we have confidence uh, that we're at least getting some of the right things because we have essentially rediscovered or confirmed most of the small set of genes that have been that were, have been discovered prior through genome-wide association studies, GWAS studies uh, in, in, in human patients, which, you know, as you know, in atrial fibrillation, like in a lot of other chronic conditions, this approach is kind of disappointed uh, in terms of how much of the disease it, it can explain. I personally think this goes back to that statement I made earlier that the, the genome is really more about potentiality of a phenotype as opposed to a direct determinism of a phenotype. But, you know, I think there's going to be some potentialities that are so strong that they'll essentially show up as a deterministic factor. So, one, we first... Um, we first reconfirmed or kind of validated the approach by rediscovering through this approach what people have discovered in patients. That's always a worry with model systems. Are they really modeling the human state correctly? And then two, to answer your question, we have discovered some unexpected genes that in the cells uh, can cause an atrial fibrillation-like phenotype, uh, which, is, which has been great. And so currently, uh, Karen and Rolf's labs are now taking the outputs of those and putting those into flies to see do they show up that arrhythmia not only in these atrial cardiomyocyte sheets that we can see in a dish, but also in a 3D organized functioning heart in, a, in an animal. So that, that works ongoing. And how far will you take a candidate? Will you get a, an IND-ready package that you can then license out, or would you actually consider taking something into the clinic? Yeah, that's a great question. I think... Um, 
functionally, I'll answer first kind of functionally what our goal is, and then I'll, then I'll say just my own personal opinion at this point about, about what, what would be most doable for us. I think our functional goals are really kind of threefold. There'd be one to do what I just described, which is to sort of discover and at least partially validate targets for atrial fibrillation. I think that's a fairly standard effort. We have, uh, you know, exciting novel technologies. I think we'll be able to do it, but that's probably not something that, you know, people are going to say, oh, that's never occurred to me to do that before. Companies and people do that all the time. I think one thing that's a little more, you know, special that we'll try to do is starting from the get-go, we are working with Evan and others to try to associate these targets with some of these sub-phenotypes of AF that they're using very modern uh, wireless EKG technologies are discovering right now for, you know, doing this much more detailed taxonomy of atrial fibrillation in the clinic, what what are the actual flavors of this disease, the long runners, the very short episodic people, what, what's in between? Try to associate our targets through um, the same systems, you know, the cells, the flies, the mice, as we did before to see, can we associate these different targets we generate from the human genome knockouts with some of these phenotypes? Not as probably, you know, super strict correlations, but as at least pretty good hypotheses that these are probably more likely to be players in one sub-phenotype versus another. And then third, I think the last piece would be, again, to go to this, you know, fundamental, more, more businessy type of question. You know, one of the issues in AF is just there's a financially based ROI problem for, for private sector companies. And so what we want to do is try to also discover lead series molecules for as many of those targets as we can because we, we think that one of the ways that we can contribute in our special flavor into the ecosystem will be to progress them as far down the path of discovery as we can so that now that ROI becomes attractive to potential partners. So would we go all the way ourselves? Would we, I think we'll always try to partner, as you as you and your, your listeners know really well. Average IND is going to be about $100 million, inclusive of all the failures. That's a big chunk for someone, for an organization that's not dedicated to that type of effort. I think if we were able to access that kind of resources, you certainly can build enough of that downstream organization to move candidates into the clinic. Um, but I think there'll be two challenges with that. One will be just accessing that level of resources for any specific disease like this. And then two, I think you, you know, you've been around the industry a long time. I've been around a long time. The practical reality is also that, you know, you know, with the same amount of money, an organization that does that for a living is probably always going to be faster and always going to be better quality than whatever kind of upstart organization we or some new biotech would be. So certainly it's a doable thing. My instinct is that we would look to partner as soon as we could convince somebody of the ROI case. And, and that comes back on us, right? The, the stronger that we can then make that scientific and clinical case, both in terms of the therapeutic hypothesis that we generate and validate through the work I described, and then also through the initial molecule discovery uh, to, to, to give people starting points. It's one thing to try to evaluate risk when you've got no numbers in front of you. Maybe it's possible to drug this target, maybe not, who knows. It's quite another thing to make a more quantitative risk assessment when there's a starting point, and you can apply medicinal chemistry judgment or biological uh, modality judgment to an existing starting point in combination with a therapeutic hypothesis, and then make a bet. I think most people are much more comfortable making a bet on that. Chris Larson, Adjunct Associate Professor at the Sanford Burnham Previs Medical Discovery Institute. Chris, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Daniel. It's great talking to you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, Subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. 
To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.